Now, can I, can I say something up front? Okay, as I told you last week, this is not going to be an academic series. With that said, hear me closely, tonight will, will be the most academic of the sessions that we do. Okay, tonight will be the most academic of the sessions that we will do. Can I go ahead and get that out on the table? But I'm going to try to make it very simple. We're going to talk through some things uh, in the handout. But tonight is not going to be a pattern of how the whole series is going to be. We're going to talk about some very practical issues related to the doctrine of the Bible. Will you say that with me? We're going to talk about what kind of issues? Some very practical issues about the doctrine of the Bible. That will come in weeks to follow. Uh, our presenter tonight, as we covered last week, Dr. Stephen Nichols has his Ph.D. Uh, in church history from Westminster Seminary. He's president of Reformation uh, College and he's a frequent lecturer around the country. He's one of the experts on Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards, one of the key figures in American Christianity. Well, the presenter tonight, he's one of the noted authorities on Jonathan Edwards. Of course, the most famous sermon ever preached in America... Uh, is probably the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, preached by Jonathan Edwards. Uh, hands down, probably the most famous sermon, other than maybe R.G. Lee, Payday Someday. Uh, but, but again, probably uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. So uh, he's our presenter. The video tonight is 24 Minutes. Uh, I won't be using his videos throughout the whole thing. Tonight, though, we're going to start talking about the authority of Scripture. And the reason I've even put some of the things on the handout I've put is because he is going to talk about how, how the higher critical schools of thought of a previous generation dominated so much of... American Christianity and the universities and seminaries. And he's going to cover a lot of problems with that. Okay? Just quite frankly, a lot of problems. And so he's going to deal with something very isolated tonight. One little issue, one problem with higher criticism. And that's why I've put some of that on your handout for tonight. So again, tonight will be a little more academic but the remaining sessions won't be. We're going to be very practical. But now let's review some of the things that we have uh, already said from last week. Uh, and then some things, of course, that we might not have made as clear as we should. But notice on your listening guide right away, the doctrine of inspiration naturally results in what? The doctrine of inerrancy. It's precisely because we believe the Bible is God-breathed that we also believe that the Scripture is inerrant or without error in the original manuscripts. 
If you were to look for a working definition of inerrancy, the inerrancy of Scripture means that Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is false or contrary to fact. The definition in its simplest understanding just means that the Bible always tells the truth. Furthermore, we could add that it always tells the truth concerning everything that it talks about. Some have tried to say that inerrancy only refers to matters of faith, but inerrancy extends to and includes the Bible's words about history and science. Nobody says that the Bible is a science textbook. Nobody says it's a history textbook. However, when it mentions things that are scientific or historical, the Bible can be trusted, and it's been proven time and time again in that regard. If we couldn't trust it in that regard, then who's to say we could trust it in matters pertaining to salvation? You know, if we couldn't trust a historical situation in the Bible, then how would we know that we could trust John 3.16? Look at number four. The Bible can be inerrant and still speak in ordinary terms or in round numbers without discounting or threatening inerrancy. We call this phenomenological language. What would be an example of that? 72. Okay. Uh, day or how about how about the sun rising? Does the sun rise? No. Sun doesn't rise. It's the earth that's revolving, right? The rotation of the earth. But the Bible can speak of when the sun rose, Jacob went out. Um, You know, as one of your Baptist theologians, uh, Strong, said, would you prefer it to say when the earth tilted on its axis at one point such and such degree and the solar luminary reflected you know then Jacob went out to see Rebecca would you would you want the Bible talking like that of course not the Bible talks the way we talk Uh, and so it can say the sun rises even though we know sun doesn't rise That's called phenomenological language. And the Bible speaks that way without threatening inerrancy. Uh, Number five, Scripture cannot rightly be understood unless we take into consideration that it has dual-sided authorship. It's not enough to affirm that the Bible is a human witness to divine revelation Because the Bible is also God's witness to himself. We must affirm that the Bible is entirely the word of God and the words of human authors. It's the word of God written in the words of men. God even knew the personalities and vocabulary and backgrounds and so forth of different biblical writers. Um, We believe that he chose them with all of that in mind. Uh, And... He inspired his word through them, and the different personalities come out. Um, I mentioned last week, Book of Hebrews is some of the most polished Greek in the entire New Testament. Uh, 
Paul's Greek, on the other hand, is more rugged and fast-paced. Different, different personalities, different styles. Uh, number six, Scripture is God-breathed, as 2 Timothy 3.16 makes clear. Uh, and as the words in the Greek text make clear, all of Scripture is God-breathed. Scripture doesn't say that only portions were inspired. And as 2 Peter 1 states, men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The same word was used in the book of Acts in speaking of the ship that Paul was being um, that Paul was on being carried along by the wind. The sailors had to give up control of the ship and simply let the wind carry it along. It's the same word that's used in 2 Peter 1 about the Holy Spirit carrying the writers of Scripture along. Last week we went over the different theories of inspiration leading to inerrancy. And I said that it's the last one verbal plenary view that evangelicals believe uh, best says what we believe about inerrancy. Verbal meaning even the words are inspired and plenary meaning the entire Bible, the whole Bible. So the whole Bible, not just portions of it, and even the words. And folks, think about it this way too. This is why pastors and Sunday school teachers and so forth will even go into detail sometimes about words and word studies. Because we believe even the words matter. Why, why did the biblical writer use this word versus that word? Why was it put in such and such tense and not in that some other tense. All of that factors into the verbal plenary inspiration of the Bible. Now how important is the doctrine of inerrancy to the church? It's very important, isn't it? When you sit down with a family, a family that has experienced loss, and you're ministering to them, and you're going over scriptures about God being our shepherd and the eternal life that we have through Christ and the heavenly place that he's prepared for us. It's important to know that we're speaking the word of God uh, to men and women, right? It's, it's very important in doing ministry. When you sit down with somebody doing marriage counseling or premarital counseling, you're going through marriage documents in the Old and New Testament, marriage passages. Uh, it's very important to know this is what the Word of God says on this topic of marriage. Parenting, likewise, whatever topic. It's very important. It's critical, absolutely critical uh, to the ministry in the church. Now, the listening guide tonight. Let me just, let me, because as I mentioned, tonight is going to be the most academic. Um, and it's not going to be how future weeks are going to be. But he's going to talk about different patterns of thinking in various ages, the mythological age, and how Greek philosophers and writers would try to explain ultimate realities in the world uh, using myths, using philosophy, things of that nature. And then we come out of that ancient period into the church. And certainly in Roman Catholicism, 
what governed everything, the church, the institution of the church itself. Then you get into the period of the Reformation. The Reformers brought the church back to Scripture, sola scriptura, Scripture alone. You know, the Roman Catholic Church was saying the, the, the traditions of the church, the edicts of popes, along with Scripture, all of those. But Protestants were saying, no, 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 it is sola scriptura, Scripture alone that is our guide. Uh, you get into the period of the Renaissance, which was right along the time and right immediately following the Reformation. Some parts of the world, Reformation was going on. Other parts of Europe, Renaissance was going on, which the Renaissance, very secular. And they were pushing modern science and philosophy. And then we come to the modern age with science and reasoning and human logic. Now we're in post-modernity which is suspicious of all truth and is post-modernity. Uh, people are satisfied to live with contradictions. It's amazing. Uh, without any real basis of authority at all. And the same person will hold to contradictory things at the same time and see no, um, no problems with that. We, we ought to see lots of problems with that. But anyway, he's going to go into some of that. And here's where he's going to land down. Number five, higher criticism. Higher criticism. It was big in America from 1880 to about 1920. It was an attack on the inspiration of the Bible. Uh, it started with the Pentateuch. What's the Pentateuch? The first five books of the Bible. They took aim with the, at the Mosaic authorship. Of the Pentateuch. By the way, let me say this. Jesus never had an issue with the Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch. He would quote from different places of the first five books of the Bible. And what would Jesus say? Moses said. Moses said. But in higher criticism, it attacked Mosaic authorship. Uh, they said the scripture was not inspired by God. I'm just, I'm, I'm just reading this document if you want to read along with me. They said that scripture is not inspired by God, which would, which would make it top down. Inspiration from God would make it top down. Rather, they claim that scripture is a human book woven together by many different authors. Not necessarily those commonly believed or attributed uh, to books in the Bible. So in the case of the Pentateuch, higher critical scholars denied that Moses was the author. Uh, they believed that some writers were in the J school. I'll, I'll explain that in a moment. Others the E, others D, others P. This is known as JEDP or the Documentary Hypothesis. And so the Pentateuch was written by many writers and editors and it involved, evolved through many changes and additions. Now folks, looking out at my crowd tonight, the age of many of you, when you went through college, okay, if you took Bible classes, chances are you were taught J-E-D-P. Nobody holds to that, or a few hold to that today. It's collapsed, and we can be thankful for that. It's collapsed. But looking out at my audience tonight, 
most of you, when you went through college classes or seminary classes, you were taught J-E-D-P. Uh, J, what would J be? Yahwistic or Jehovah? And they said all these places in the first five books of the Bible that can be attributed to the J source were written somewhere between 900 and 850 B.C. Then you come to the E where the name for God is Elohim. 750 to 700 B.C. And then the Deuteronomic source. Roughly 621 B.C. And then the P, the priestly source. And so as they read through the first five books in the Bible, every passage in there, every chapter, they would assign to one of these sources. Priestly source, 586 B.C. And then someone came along somewhere around 400 B.C. and kind of looked at them all, edited everything, and then wrote, finally edited what we finally have today as the Pentateuch. Uh, you see any problems with all that? I hope you do. Why did, why did they do this? Why, why did they name these things this way? For one, different names of God that were used. If Yahweh was used, they'd say, ah, oh, that's the J source. If Elohim, ah, oh, that's the, the E school. Uh, the book of Deuteronomy and the law that we find there, that's another source. Depending on the name of God that was used, they would assign it to a different writer or groupings of writers but folks what's the problem with the problem with that is Moses was giving different names of God emphasizing different attributes of God and so if he's in a passage where he's talking about God being creator you know, Elohim. If he's in a passage talking about God being a covenant-keeping God, he would use the name of God, Yahweh. What I'm saying is using a different name for God doesn't have to imply an entirely different source or entirely different writer. Moses was just trying to emphasize some different attribute about God. Well, no, uh, in, the, in, the, uh, in, in this school called the Wellhausen School, named after the German fella, what they were doing was denying that the Bible had a divine source. It was a human document put together over time 
that the Bible, and it, and it coincided with Darwinianism in biology. And they were assigning some of those same type things to literary criticism in the Bible, saying it just sort of evolved over time. And they took the divine aspect uh, out. So he's going to get into some of that tonight. I'm going to come back at the end. We're going to talk more about that. And we're going to talk about some more of the problems with that. But again, tonight's video is, is on the authority of the Bible. And how higher criticism was actually an attack on the authority of the Bible. May I ask you a question? Yes. When you were in college, what, this, what did J-E-B-T mean to you? How did you take that at the time? Did you feel that it was kind of confusing at the time? No. Because, you know, you're looking at an older crowd that sure. may be more acceptable. Sure. once it got to you, you're like, this is not... By the time I was in school, most already the school was beginning to collapse. I still had some professors that held to it. But I just knew they were holding to a failing system. And they were of a more moderate to liberal mindset that they had been trained in those schools. And modern evangelical scholarship was moving away from that. So, I mean, I certainly didn't embrace what they were teaching, but it was just symptomatic of the training that they had had. But anyway, let's start with the video, and then we're going to come back uh, later on tonight and, and say more about this. In our last session together, we were talking about revelation, and one of those attributes that we talked about of revelation is the authority of revelation. So we're going to spend time in our next two sessions here together talking about the authority of revelation. Our first uh, of these two sessions, we're going to talk about inspiration, the doctrine of inspiration. Uh, this uh, word actually is a biblical word. It, comes from a text that uh, many of you are familiar with. It comes from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. And as we get to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, uh, this is what Paul tells us. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So this word, inspired, and the doctrine of inspiration comes from this text, and actually comes from many more texts than this, but this is where we start. And it reminds us something, it reminds us something right off the bat, and that is that Scripture is top-down. It is the Word of God to us. Now, this is what sets Scripture apart. This is what differentiates uh, Scripture. This is what differentiates Scripture from all other views out there, from all other philosophies of life. 
you know, we talked a little bit in our last session together of the, the philosophies that were around and prevalent in Paul's day, the, the philosophies of Plato, the ideas of Aristotle. Throughout the centuries of human history, there has been a desire to answer the big questions, you know, the big questions of life. Uh, who am I? Where did I come from? Uh, where, where am I going? What is the meaning of all of this? And they're not just questions on a personal level, are they? They're, they're also questions on sort of the macro level. Where did all of this, as we look around and see it, where did it all come from? What is the purpose of it? Well, to answer those questions through the ages, different answers have been put forth. Uh, there was the mythological age. You know, this is the this is the great stories of Homer as he tries to explain the world by using myth. And coming out of Homer's home city, uh, Miletus is the first of the great Greek philosophers, Thales. And so Thales changes or shifts from myth to explain the phenomenon to answer those big questions, switches and switches us over to philosophy. And so philosophy rules. And then, of course, we have the coming of the church and with the passing of the Greco-Roman era into the Middle Ages, we have the era of Christendom. And now the church is the authority. You couldn't help but but see it even. It, it, it dominated the landscape. You know, you looked off the horizon and what would you see? You wouldn't see some skyscraper. You would see the cathedral tower. And so that physical, uh, that, that physical archaeological or uh, architectural uh, edifice there was pointing to how the church dominated the mental landscape as well. It was the church that told you your place. Well, then we come into the era of the Reformation. Right, And the Reformers take us back to Scripture, that wonderful doctrine of sola scriptura. So now, Scripture is our authority, but not everybody agreed that that was the direction to go. And so, as we see the era of the Reformation, we also have the era of the Renaissance, right? And uh, with the Renaissance, we have the beginnings of modern science and the beginnings of modern philosophy. And this Enlightenment period moves us into this modern age as we come into the late 1600s and through the 1700s and through the 1800s. And increasingly, there was a shift away from the church, a shift away from Scripture as our authority. And instead, we began to look within our own head, and we began to stress human autonomy and rationality and science. And this was the modern age. Now, uh, those who watch these things tell us that the modern age is crumbling and that we are entering into a new time, a new phase, and they call it post-modernity. And some of those beliefs of modernity that were so solid, that, that much of culture was so committed to, are seen to have crumbled a little bit around the edges. And there's not so much a firm commitment to science as the answer to solve our problems as there once was. There, there's even a little bit of a suspicion 
about these methodologies that so dominated in modernity. But whether it's modernity or post-modernity, both of those worldviews have a problem with that idea that the answers to the big questions are in fact alien to us. That the answers to who am I and why am I here and where am I going, those answers are not going to be found within our own head. Those answers aren't going to be discovered as we apply all of our skill and all of our acumen and all of our abilities to try to figure out the world. Those answers come from above us. Those answers come from beyond us. Those answers come, in fact, from God. It is top down. That's difficult. We'll just stick with uh, modernity since we're not quite sure what this post-modernity thing is. We'll just stick with modernity for a while. That's difficult for someone in the modern age to grasp, to have to submit to an ancient book. In fact, there was a, a professor at, uh, at Harvard in 1891, published a book by Houghton Mifflin. His name was Joseph Henry Thayer. And uh, in his uh, book, he was uh, speaking of the doctrine of inspiration. Just a few years before, uh, Benjamin Warfield, one of the, the, called the Lion of Old Princeton, the great theologian there at Princeton Theological Seminary, uh, Warfield had published an essay on the inspiration of Scripture. And Thayer was responding to that essay, among other things, and this is what he had to say about Warfield's theory of inspiration. But by reason of improved methods of philological study, now I'll come back to that for a moment, of progress in science, see there's that key modernist commitment, of progress in science and discovery, of accumulating results and archaeological and historical research, the theory of inspiration has come to occasion restlessness and perplexity, at times not a little distress in thoughtful souls. It has become a yoke which they, unlike their fathers, are unable to bear. Now let's try to unpack that a little bit and see what Thayer is trying to tell us. When he talks about improved methods of philological study, he's talking about an enterprise of the 1800s that we call higher criticism. Uh, this started in Germany. The great uh, evangelist uh, Billy Sunday, who was known for sort of theatrics, he would uh, jump up on the platform and do all kinds of things. He was a pro baseball player, so he was a pretty athletic guy. <laughs> But, and this was in the 1910s, it was during World War I, so maybe you can understand this. Billy Sunday would say, turn hell upside down. And you know what's stamped on the bottom? Made in Germany. That's what Sunday would say. Now, it was the time of World War I. There might be just a little bit of American nationalism coming out there and that, but what was he talking about? He was talking about 
higher criticism that had flourished in Germany in the 1800s and had washed ashores in America from the 1880s into the 1920s when the fundamentalist modernist controversy raged. And the theory of higher criticism started in the Pentateuch to tell us that Moses didn't write the first five books of the Bible. Now, what's really going on there is not just a question of Moses' authorship, which the Pentateuch claims to be, the books of Moses. What's really going on there is that these books, the first five books, the Pentateuch, the foundation of Scripture, are not the result of a top-down revelation from God. But these five books are the bottom-up discussions and working out of what the Israelite community came to understand about God and the relationship to Him. The upshot of all of this challenge to Mosaic authorship is that Scripture is not a divine revelation, but a human creation, just like all of the other religious texts. And then it moved from Moses and the Pentateuch into Jesus and the Gospels. And so, Matthew is not by Matthew, uh, Mark is not by Mark, Luke is not by Luke, John is not by John. These Gospels are, in fact, the product of later communities and their, again, sort of ideas of Jesus and who He was and how we relate to Him. And so, this is what Thayer is talking about when he says, improved methods of philological study, it is no longer tenable for us to hold to inspiration. And then he says, improved methods of science, progress in science and discovery. This is something that's hard for us to see because it's so prevalent, but this idea of progress is such a fundamental commitment of modernity and even of post-modernity. And one of the byproducts of progress is the idea that newer is better. So uh, this is an ancient book. Does it really tell us how to live? Does it really tell us about human psychology and about human relationships? Or is it, in fact, outdated and outmoded? And Thayer admits as much. He says, you know, in a previous age, when there weren't such advances in science and there weren't such advances and there wasn't all of that accumulating data, our fathers could easily bear the yoke of a word from God. But we know better. We now know better. And we can't bear this yoke anymore. As we approach Scripture... We have a fundamental question to ask ourselves. It's a question of commitment, question of first principles. Is this the Word of God or not? That's the fundamental question. Now, we have to nuance this because we think that Scripture is both a divine book and a human book. Uh, We don't see the doctrine of inspiration as implying that somehow the biblical authors entered into a trance-like state and their hand was sort of taken over and maybe their eyes rolled in the back of their head and before you know it, there was a book. If only writing were that easy, right? 
we see that the biblical author's personalities are preserved in the text itself. There are differences. John reads differently than Paul. Peter reads differently than Paul. These are real human authors. So the Bible is a human book. That's a true statement. It's not written in some, some mystical language, you know. Uh, well, if you look at Hebrew, you might think it's mystical. But actually, it was just the language that was spoken. And Greek might, it's all Greek to me, right? It might look mystical to you too, but it was written in the common Greek language of the day. In fact, there were sort of two major dialects of Greek. There was the High Greek, the Attic Greek, they call it, like the attic of a house. And uh, that's, the, that's the Greek of the philosophers. That's the Greek of the poets. That's the Greek of the writers. And then there was koine, a word that just means common. In Latin, the word is vulgar, which just means common. And that's the language the Bible was written in. So it's a human book. It's written in ways that we can understand. But we must always say that while it is a human book, it is a divine book. So we need to uh, avoid two extremes there. One is not acknowledging that it's a divine book. And this is just a human product. Oh, it's a great read, very insightful might even help uh, in your life if you need it. But don't think of it as God's Word. It's sort of the secular view. And there's a long history of that. Then there's the other side that doesn't want to take into account the human authorship of the text, that again sees these biblical authors as sort of entering in a trance-like state. We don't see that either. So to start off, we need to balance these ideas that the Bible is a divine book. It is sourced in God. Its origin is God. It is breathed out from God, but God used human instruments in the recording and writing down of His Word. We see this a little bit more in another text that is used when we talk about inspiration. Right up there with 2 Timothy 3.16 is 2 Peter chapter 2. Here as we get to the end of 2 Peter chapter 2, we see in verse 16 that Peter, again, is differentiating Scripture from other approaches or other answers to those big questions. And so he says, we did not follow, in verse 16, we did not follow cleverly devised myths. Okay. There were plenty of those around in the first century. That's not what this is. Now, this is from God. If we drop down to verse 21, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Remember, here are echoes of Paul from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 when he says, you received it as it is, not as the word of men, but you received it as what it really is, the word of God. Peter's saying the same thing. It was, it was never produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, a nice imagery there sometimes given as a way to understand this is sort of like the way the, the winds may carry a ship or the waves may carry a ship. And so there's a preserving there of the human authorship. And Peter well knows his, 
his, uh, his uh, humanity, doesn't he? There's a preserving there of the human authorship. But these words are the words from God. So we start off with the doctrine of inspiration, of, of recognizing that it is in fact a top-down revelation, that that differentiates all of these other attempts throughout human history, throughout these different philosophical schools or approaches of trying to answer these questions, who am I, why am I here, what is the purpose of all of this? We see it that Scripture is top-down, not only in these proof texts, as we call them, of, of 2 Timothy 3.16 and 2 Peter chapter 1. We also see it all throughout the Bible. We see it even more in Paul. You know, Paul will write it, whether he's writing to the Corinthians or even writing to the Galatians. He doesn't say this, does he? Uh, you need to do this because I'm telling you to do this. He, he says, you need to do this because I speak for God as his apostle. In fact, he makes it clear that these are not his words. These are not his thoughts. These are not his ideas. These are, in fact, the words of God. He is simply an apostle who speaks the word of God. We see it in the Old Testament. You trip over this phrase in the Old Testament, don't you? Thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. It's never the word of Malachi. It's the word of the Lord through the prophet Malachi. And we even see this differentiated in Matthew chapter 5 to 7. Christ does something the Old Testament prophets never did in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you have heard it said, and he quotes the Old Testament. Then he says, but I say unto you. No biblical author ever claims that authority. They are always the mouthpiece of God. And so it's not just a proof text. It's woven all through Scripture. If we're going to come to Scripture, if we're going to read it, if we're going to look to it, we're going to have to let it tell us what it is. And what it tells us very clearly is it is the Word of God. Now, different people have tried different ways to explain this doctrine of inspiration. Uh, we could have what we call the liberal view. This sort of comes out of that era of the 1880s to the 1910s. This is probably seen best in a quote like Thayer, you know, who says, uh, we can't bear the yoke of this inspiration anymore. But it was also differentiated or put out there by uh, the, the pastor, Harry Emerson Fosdick, who pastored Riverside Cathedral in New York and was, uh, had his national program on the radio. His sermons were published in the New York Times. He said, we have to distinguish the Shekinah from the shrine. Okay. The shrine is the book. And somewhere contained in this book is what Fosdick liked to call abiding truths. Okay. That's what's inspired. Not the very words, but these sort of general truths that abide through the ages. So we have the liberal view of inspiration. Somewhere embedded in all of these details is that sort of nugget of truth that you can hold on to and latch on to. In the 1950s and 60s, 
We have the theologian Karl Barth who tells us that God inspires his word when it is proclaimed to his people. So God hasn't spoken in his word. He speaks through his word when it is proclaimed. In a nutshell, that amounts to saying the Bible is not the word of God, but the Bible contains the word of God. Well, against those various options, we have what we call the verbal, plenary view of inspiration. Verbal tells us that it's the very words that are inspired. And we'll see this in our next time together, some scripture references to bear this out. And plenary tells us that the whole thing is inspired, not just where it talks in terms of the gospel or in terms of salvation. And so when it speaks of history or when it speaks of this subject or that subject, well, then it's, you know, not necessarily. Plenary tells us the whole thing is inspired, and verbal tells us it's the very words of God. Well, here we are again without our GPS. So what are we going to do, right? Are we going to follow these philosophies, these cleverly devised myths, or are we going to say God has spoken and he's given us his word? That's the choice that's before us. We'll look at the implication of this doctrine of verbal plenary inspiration in our next session together as we talk about Why cover all of this early on in this series? Uh, look at what I put at the very bottom of your last page on your handout. Why even mention these things? To show how the Bible has been attacked, but has weathered such attacks and come out shining. Christians today can have confidence in their Bible. Uh, now, folks, in Southern Baptist life, uh, those of you who are old enough to remember it, all of this uh, hit the fan, so to speak. You may remember after uh, Ralph Elliott wrote a book on Genesis in the 60s, and then the first volume of uh, the commentary series, The Broadman. Remember the old Broadman series? Did you have that? Now, it's been redone today in the New American Commentary series, a good, very good series. But the old Broadman series, uh, the first volume that ever came out in 69, I believe it was, uh, and then also Eliot's book in 61, here again in Southern Baptist life, embraced all of this. Uh, denying Mosaic authorship, buying into the Wellhausen School, the documentary hypothesis, the JEDP and all that. 
And so with the election of Dr. Adrian Rogers in 1979 and, and since with our Southern Baptist presidents, what's referred to as the conservative resurgence, um, Southern Baptists got together leading up to that and said, something's got to be done. Because our professors were going away to some of these German schools and being trained in all this and then coming back and introducing it into our seminaries. And so beginning in 79 is when we started addressing that ourselves as a denomination. And fortunately, our schools have gone through... uh, a complete changeover and now any of our six seminaries uh, you could send your young people to and they're excellent seminaries in fact in the top 10 seminaries in America our six Southern Baptist seminaries are all in that list of the top 10 seminaries in America okay but if you, some of you in here who have kids going away to college, I look, look at some of you. If they're in schools and Old Testament classes where they're being taught the old documentary, documentary hypothesis, the JEDP. Now, they ought to be taught that to be acquainted with it. But if they are taught that by a professor who is affirming it, it may be a pretty good indication that your young person may not be in the school where they need to be. Okay? But anyway, just uh, look back at the page that I gave you. Uh, Look at page 3. Look at the top of page 3. I just want to read over some things. That that first section there, Julius Velhausen, he was a biblical nihilist. In other words, he held that the Bible does not have historical credibility. Look down at that next section to what's underlined there. It arose out of a time period that rejected absolute truth. Sounds like 2019, doesn't it? Uh, it developed in a time time period where philosophically it was believed that all truth is in a state of flux. And the last statement in that, in that same section, I said, interestingly enough, evolutionary ideas of the origins of the universe and man and the documentary hypothesis of Old Testament criticism were growing up and developing together. Coincidence? I don't think so. Look at number six. Higher criticism, if you've not guessed it, took inspiration out of the equation. The Bible became more of a patchwork of men putting things together. Number seven. He proposed, Wellhausen that is, that the Bible was not accurate in its recording of things, revealing that it had been written so long after the event that the facts and data it gives cannot be trusted. Let me give you an example of that. The book of Daniel in the Old Testament. What year did Nebuchadnezzar first come into uh, Jerusalem? 605 B.C. And the different 
invasions, 605, 597, so forth, di different invasions, Nebuchadnezzar came in taking residence away. Uh, we believe that Daniel, the book of Daniel, was written by Daniel. But according to this school of thought, not so. The book of Daniel, they would say, was not written for maybe another 400 years. And so again, according to this school of thought, what you read in your Old Testament, dates, facts, all of the above, cannot be trusted. Uh, they took inspiration out. Now, look at number 10. I just gave you a few reasons why uh, the documentary hypothesis breaks down. Extra biblical text corroborate the testimony of the patriarchal narratives in the book of Genesis. Archaeological evidence situates the narratives in the Middle Bronze period, 2000 B.C. to 1550. In other words, if events that happen in the Bible match up with customs that historians and archaeologists have discovered about that period of time, does that diminish or strengthen confidence in the Bible's trustworthiness of the recording of that event? It strengthens it, right? It does. And then the third thing I mentioned there, naturalistic assumptions about the origins of the Bible do not agree with the archaeological and documentary evidences. The, the spade of the archaeologist continues even today to turn over things in the earth, making discoveries that affirm and corroborate what our Bibles have been teaching us all along. Uh, look at number 12. Things that would seem to put the Pentateuch firmly in the Middle Bronze Age. Social contracts and covenants match with that period of time. In other words, what we read in the Bible and what we know uh, about the customs of the day coincide. The contracts and covenants we see in Genesis, for example, match what we know would have been the case at the time that Genesis claims to be writing about. Later contracts and covenants included more detail and stipulations, but relating to the life of Abraham, for example, match up perfectly with contracts and covenants that were carried out and executed during the period of time that Abraham is said to have lived. Then the next thing I put there, personal names, place names, political events and situation, situations now known uh, to match the way the Bible in the patriarchal narratives records them. If these had been written hundreds or thousands of years later, as Wellhausen proposed, you would not expect such accuracy. And then I just gave you a little tidbit, just a miscellaneous tri uh, trivia, simplistic example. Uh, Wellhausen doubted patriarchal narratives because of the Bible speaking of camels being used in transport. He held that this did not occur until much later and hence he claimed the Bible to be inaccurate. But it's been discovered that camels were used as transport as early as 
um, uh, 2200 B.C. So again, very few, uh, in fact, I don't know of any Old Testament scholar who holds to this today. Uh, I'm told there are those out there because they invested so much of their lives into it decades and decades ago, they don't want to let it go. Um, but again, for the most part, this has been rejected. Um, and what does all this do? All this uh, says the Bible is not accurate. It's not a divine book. It's not inspired. It's a man-made hodgepodge. But um, history and archaeology and discoveries that have been made don't match up to that. Again, why is he at this part of this series, why is he talking about this? Why am I talking about this? So that later on, when we're being more application-oriented in this series, uh, you can know you have a Bible that you can trust. There is no reason to doubt your Bible when it says, Thus saith the Lord. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine, for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now folks, as we're going to talk about as we continue on Sunday nights, if we have a Bible that we believe we can trust, and we believe it's God speaking to us. And we're not reading it. And then we're not applying what we read. There is a serious disconnect. But that's what's happening in the church today in 2019. We've got evangelical pastors and lay people saying they believe the Bible, but we're not preaching it. We're not teaching it, and we're not living it. And that's sad. If we really believe we've got God's Word in our hands, what should we be doing? We should be devouring it. Now, I gave you some homework from last week. Did anybody write any of those things down? If you did... Share with us some of what you wrote down. I had you looking at Psalm 119, what the psalmist said about Scripture. What are some of the things you wrote down? Call, call it out so all of us can hear what you say. Pursue God's truths diligently. Yes. Somebody else. Amen. Hiding God's word in your heart so you won't sin against God. What else? A lamp to our feet and a light to our path gives us the direction, the guidance that we need. Somebody else? Yes. Amen. A few others. 
Amen. Diligence in keeping God's statutes. Something else he says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your precepts. Then another one. He says, your laws and your precepts have become my counselors. We live in a day where people are seeking counsel. Folks, the greatest counsel you and I will ever receive is to open the Bible and start reading. What else? Did anybody else write down one? There is. The Word of God will help us to turn our eyes away from worthlessness. You know, Jeremiah the prophet said, uh, God said through Jeremiah, My people have pursued worthless things. Do you remember what he said the outcome was? My people have pursued worthless things and they have become worthless. You become what you pursue. What else? You, the sum of your word is truth. Yes. Two more. The unfolding of your word gives light. It unfolds truth to the simple. Amen. Somebody else. One more. I put down the very essence of your word is truth. All your steps, regulations, and commands are ordinance. Amen. We, we do. Absolutely. If you didn't do your homework from last week, go through Psalm 119, longest chapter in the Bible, and write down, write down 12, 15, 20 things that he's saying there about the Scripture and what the Scripture will do in your life. Okay. Yes, I wish I could... I wish I could say all of our colleges and universities had gone through some of the same transition our seminaries have, and not all of them have. I barely escaped having interviews with my soul and life in Christ. Yeah. Sent me directly to Southeastern. Sure. I'll be glad if anybody wants to send their child here, <laughs> they can take part in this. <laughs> And fortunately, today our seminaries are starting program college programs where they're combining college and seminary together so you can get a bachelor's and a master's. And the way they're doing the, the two different tracks, you can graduate from with both your bachelor's and your master's in about five years. And uh, the colleges that our seminaries have linked with them for instance, Boyce College along with Southern Seminary.
uh, those colleges linked up with our seminaries are very solid. Um, but again, some of our some of our universities and colleges in Southern Baptist life haven't quite made the full transition yet. We've got some very good colleges, some very good, solid colleges and universities, but we've got some that are still teaching some of this. There are many ways to God. I couldn't get out of there fast enough. Mm. Wow. Very much about Crown Bible College in Tennessee. Mm-mm. We loved him. Actually, you know, before I moved here, mm. uh, a lot of our young people were attending Crown Bible College in Tennessee, and they were yes. very, it, it was very successful. Good. It was an Appalachian Bible College. Okay. They were teaching them right. Yeah. I didn't know if they were in the Southern Baptist. No, not, not as far as I know, huh? Okay.